Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is episode 13 of season 5, A Better Search for Barbara, an ongoing investigation into the disappearance of 15-year-old Barbara Louise Cotton, last seen in Williston, North Dakota, on April 11, 1981. Hey everybody, it's Thursday, May 6th, 2021, and I've decided to add a little update at the very beginning of this episode. I was all ready to publish it, but I'm going to drop this in here. And I'm doing it a little bit differently. I'm actually sitting outside in rural North Dakota, drinking a cup of coffee out in a pasture, basically, looking out at the open, wide open space. And what I want to tell you is that I'm going to send in a tip to Williston PD, I've decided. After I publish this episode, I'm going to write a long email to them and tell them about something I've been thinking about for a long time. And unfortunately, I can't really tell you about it, but here's the gist of it. Basically, you know, when we talk about mysteries like Barbara Cotton's, we talk about puzzles and finding pieces of the puzzle. Actually, a better way of stating it is if we look at Barbara's disappearance as something we need to unlock to find answers. I don't so much think that I found a key, but I think I know what lock needs to be unlocked. And I think that law enforcement need to make sure they really look in this area. So that's what I'm going to do. And it kind of kills me that I can't tell you more, but I want to explain right now why I'm not going to tell you more about this tip. I mean, mostly it's to protect the well-being of an individual, not so much their safety, but just their well-being. And because, very importantly, I've been asked not to share it, and finding answers to what happened to Barbara Cotton is more important than this podcast. And who knows, if this leads to an answer about what happened to Barbara Cotton, you'll hear about it eventually. But like I said, basically, I feel like I want to tell law enforcement where they should be focusing some of their efforts to help unlock a lock that might completely open up answers about what happened to Barbara Cotton. So thank you for understanding. I'm going to publish this now, this episode, and I'm going to, I'm actually recording this on video. So I'll post this to maybe the Facebook group as well. And you can see a little bit of rural North Dakota. If you're not in the Facebook group, please uh, consider joining. And with that, here is episode 13. Coming up later in this episode, we're going to talk more about person of interest Frank J. De La Pena. As usual, I've been busy working on this story, this unsolved cold case. My days are filled with an array of tasks, actually, from composing and sending off open records requests, tracking down or at least attempting to track down people, and following up on leads or tips that you have all sent to me. Sometimes these tips lead to uncomfortable or even creepy interactions. Sometimes they turn out to be a little bit comical, but that's okay. I could use a laugh now and then in this otherwise very sad story. Case in point, I recently talked to a taxidermist from the Williston area. 
I called him because someone told me that the man had a human skull sitting on a shelf. And I got to thinking, that is not completely out of the question that someone might find a human skull somewhere in the open prairie and then never tell the police about it. In fact, that kind of thing has happened, or did happen at least, back in the 50s. Here is a 30-second snippet of Dakota Spotlight Season 1, where I spoke with a man named Francis Tibor. Back in the 50s, my uncles who were avid bow hunters and rifle hunters, uh, stumbled across this human skull. So they brought it back home. And for years, I know it was around the farmstead. As a matter of fact, uh, I was in grade school at the time, and uh, they gave it to me so I could take it to school, or show and tell in school. And I know it was kept around there in the granary for a number of years. Eventually, someone pointed out that they should turn that skull in, and so they gave it to the State Historical Society. They said it was from a, either a young boy or a young lady. That skull was found back in the 50s before Barbara Cotton was born, but I had to follow up on this tip and call this taxidermist in Williston. Unfortunately, he did not want to be recorded or on the podcast, but he sure got a kick out of my phone call. A skull, he said. I sure do. It's made out of plastic, and the police were here 20 years ago to take a look at it. He explained that he had glued some jackrabbit hair on the plastic skull, mostly just as a conversation piece. And so I scratched that tip off our list. Like I said, a laugh or two in between all of the other emotions is kind of nice. I can still see her sitting there. Where at first they said she's a runaway, and I kept saying to people, she's not, she wasn't a runaway. She had no reason to run. I don't care what people say. I know she didn't have run away. There's no way. Nobody had ever sat me down throughout all of these years and asked me anything. I don't even remember the police coming to the house, to be honest with you. Could this guy come along and just grab her and take her out somewhere? Because he's done it to two people. And and I and I gotta tell you, I've always believed that he that he hurt her. When my mom said she was missing, that's the first thing that popped in my head. And I feel guilty that we didn't do enough early on. No, I have no knowledge where remains are for Barb Cotton. It's so bad that I cannot remember her name. But I know exactly where she lived. She lived in the um, the 18th um, housing project there in the brick ones, the townhouses. It just kind of broke my heart a little bit that, you know, Barbara was just as deserving of the same investigation, regardless of whether she was older or chose, you know, she had a boyfriend or, you know, even if she was sexually active or, you know, drank or did whatever, she was just as deserving. I looked at it through those lenses. And it was, it was heartbreaking. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. 
I don't know about you all, but I'm starting to feel a little bit disoriented in this story. Why is it that I feel like I almost knew more about Barbara's disappearance in episode 1 than I do now in episode 13? Of course, that's not at all true. It's just a feeling. We know much, much more now than we did then. But at the same time, I'm kind of more confused and less certain of what the actual truth is. Somehow, things seemed easier when all we knew was the following, as posted on the website The Charlie Project and read by a voice actor. Barbara was last seen leaving a restaurant on Main Street in her hometown of Williston, North Dakota, during the evening hours of April 11, 1981. She had dinner there with her boyfriend and another friend. Barbara's boyfriend offered to accompany Barbara home afterwards, but she declined and left the restaurant alone. Her boyfriend watched her walk to Recreation Park, which is five blocks from home. Barbara never arrived at her destination and has never been heard from again. She did not take her clothes, eyeglasses, cigarettes, money, or any other personal belongings with her when she disappeared. She also left behind a paycheck from work. Barbara's case was originally investigated as a runaway case, and a missing persons report was not filed for several days as a result. Her case is considered open and unsolved. That is a story that we can somehow imagine in our minds, right? But now the story is just so much more confusing with so many moving parts. Here are some random things we have learned and things we need to now ponder over. Stacy Werder was with Barbara on the night she vanished, but he was never spoken to by law enforcement back then. Or if he was, it wasn't documented. Or if it was documented... The reports are missing or gone or lost or something. Speaking of documents, Williston PD tells us that the case files for Barbara Cotton don't really start shaping up with proper or more hardy documentation until around 1985 or so, four years after her disappearance. Why is this? We've been operating on the assumption that the investigation was simply not documented properly. It was sloppy. But do we know that, really? Maybe there are documents missing from the file. And if there are, why would that be? The most straightforward way of knowing if there are discrepancies in the file would be to view it. I've seen plenty of police files. I can't speak for Williston PD, but I can tell you that investigators at the Bismarck Police Department, at least as far back as the early 90s, carefully indexed their reports. On the bottom right-hand corner of each page was a notation of the document number. For example, it might start with the letter D, and then a dash, and then a number, such as D1, the first record in the D section of the file. The next page would be D2. You get the picture. D3, and so on. So we might wonder, what does the Barbara Cotton file look like? Did it ever get to a state of being indexed and organized? Is there a D1 and then a D2 through, I don't know, D200 or 2000? And if so, are there any missing documents? Does it jump from D29 to D50 or anything like that? As I said, the easiest way to know would be to view the file itself, but as long as a case is unsolved, open, and ongoing, a police file is exempt from the open records laws. And by the way, if you are a resident of North Dakota, at least, you should know that records are not closed unless open. It's the other way around. All records are open to the public unless they are somehow exempt from that law. 
In other words, it's not up to you to prove that a record is open or should be open for your review, but it's the other way around. The agency or record keeper needs to display or demonstrate to you how that record is exempt from the open records law. I'm working on a future episode all about open records laws, transparency of government, and your rights as a resident of your state. Barbara Cotton's sister, Kathy, told us in this podcast that she was told in about 2004 that Williston PD said they will never close this case. They wanted her to know they'll never give up on solving it, I guess. But the byproduct of never closing a case is that we, me, you, residents of North Dakota, may never get the truth, may never see the contents of that file. And this despite the fact that Barbara Cotton is legally deceased and has been since 1998. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I distrust that type of reasoning, usually. But maybe that's clouding my judgment. Maybe I should be more open to the possibility that some kind of entity, something, in 1981 was attempting to shuffle the truth into the shadows. I mean, it really makes no sense that Stacy Werder was not interviewed, or if he was, that no documentation took place. Maybe he was interviewed. Maybe there was documentation about it at some point. And then there's that unnamed friend that saw Barbara at the party that night. She was one of the last persons, maybe the last person, to have seen Barbara, but it doesn't appear that she was interviewed at length back then, or at least it doesn't sound like there's any record of it. It just doesn't make any sense. We've also learned that Barbara's older brother, Frank Cotton, is a person of interest in her disappearance, but we don't really know why exactly. Kent and Kathy Cotton, Barbara's siblings, have no real recollection of the police coming to their house or searching through Barbara's bedroom. Kent Cotton doesn't even remember being spoken to by the police until about a year ago. What does this mean? Sometimes I catch myself wondering and thinking that maybe Barbara's alive somewhere in some kind of crazy witness relocation program. Here's another thing to ponder, something we've not spoken about that much. On August 1st or September 1st, 1981, about four to five months after Barbara vanished, Louise Cotton received a phone call from Stacy Werder's mother in California. Stacy Werder hung himself in jail in Montana on July 16th, so this phone call from Stacy's mother to Barbara's mother was between two to six weeks after his suicide. Stacy's mother told Louise Cotton some things. For one, she said that Stacy had talked about Barbara before his death. This must mean that he spoke with his mother on the phone, but when she said he talked about Barbara, what did that mean? Did he say, Mom, I've got a new girlfriend named Barbara? Or did he say, Mom, there's this girl named Barbara Cotton that's missing, and it seems like I was one of the last people to see her alive. I don't know anything about it. Stacy's mother also told Barbara's mother this. She said, If Barbara ever comes home, please have her call me. Why did Mrs. Werder do this? Did she think that Stacy killed himself over a girl? Did she just want to know if Barbara knew anything? Did she want to confront Barbara? Wouldn't it be nice to know the full context and contents of those conversations between those mothers? We know they took place because Louise Cotton called the Williston Police Department and told them, 
and she gave them Mrs. Werder's phone number in California. But Williston PD seem unsure about all of this to this day. Certainly it seems that this too was never looked into, or at least documented, or the documentation is gone. And the list of unanswered questions goes on. I'll be honest, when we got the opportunity to speak with investigators working on this case, I thought it would answer some of our questions and things would make a lot more sense, but it actually confuses me even more. We did, of course, get some great information, though. For example, we learned about Frank De La Pena, a man who murdered two young girls in Wyoming about three weeks after Barbara vanished. He was in Williston when Barbara disappeared. Frank De La Pena was apprehended, and then, just like Stacy Werder, he hung himself in jail. It's hard to not wonder if those two men were connected somehow. One way to find out would be if anyone could place Stacy Werder and Frank De La Pena at the same oil company. Both men worked in the oil industry. This is well documented in De La Pena's case, and in Werder's case, it says as much on his death certificate. Maybe you can help. Did you yourself, or do you know someone who worked in any of the following oil companies in or around Williston in 1981? Size Pros, HR, Barroid, Sethful, or CGG? I'll repeat those in a second. Does anyone have any knowledge of these companies, or can you put me in touch with someone who does? Size Pros, HR, Barroid, or maybe Barroid, not sure, Sethful, CGG. If you know anything about these companies, please email me at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. Here's another thing I've been getting told over and over again by people. People tell me I should really look into this. They tell me that prostitution was being operated out of a hotel in Williston in 1981, and that this operation could more or less just do business in plain sight. If you have any information about this, I'd love to hear about it. Like I said, we have a lot more information, but somehow things seem to be even more confusing. I hope you're not becoming too frustrated with this story. I wish I had more answers for us, but what are our options at this point? Should we just give up? I don't think so. I think the opposite should happen. In Season 4 of Dakota Spotlight, I explored the unsolved case of Billy Wolf, murdered in Fargo back in 1978, three years before Barbara vanished. The investigating agency in that case is Clay County, Minnesota, just across the river from Fargo. Clay County Sheriff Mark Empting recently hired a retired investigator to work on the Billy Wolf case, to work on it consistently, focusing just on that case and one other cold case. This is what the Sheriff of Clay County, Minnesota, had to say about his decision to do just that. I, I did just recently hire... Um uh, an individual, he's going to be working part-time for us, but he's uh, he retired from the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. He had 23 years working with them, most recently in their homicide division. Um, and that's what his that's what his job is going to be here now, is to look at two, or two of our cold cases that we have and see if he can maybe bring some closure to the families. We're going to be getting a fresh look at it, fresh eyes at it, and um, Hopefully he'll be able to maybe look at some things in there that could have been done that that weren't done and, and things like that. So it's for us, I think it's a I think it's a good step forward. But this guy's got the expertise, and he's not only you know he won't be looking at it alone. If he sees something that they need to follow up on, then one of our other other full time detectives and him will be able to go out and and start working that lead. So 
I think it's a, I think it's a good thing um, for the sheriff's office, but I think it's even a better thing for the family. You know, after what, 42 years that have passed. This is what Barbara deserves, someone at Williston PD dedicated to Barbara's case, someone who can take the time to return phone calls and return emails, someone who can focus their efforts on finding answers while it's still possible to interview people, while people are still alive. Now, I have some new information for you about Frank de la Pena. Before we get into that, though, I want to touch on something from the last episode, because you might be wondering about it. Last time we met Chad. Chad grew up three blocks from where Barbara lived, and after hearing a better search for Barbara, he remembered something. He had a tip, something he felt needed to be passed on to investigators working on Barbara's case. But, as we heard last time, three weeks after he had left both a voicemail and an email, he'd received absolutely no response back. You'll recall I brought this to the attention of Captain Gutnick at Williston PD, and Chad was promptly contacted. I just want to let you know that I was in touch with Chad yesterday, and he let me know that he met with Williston PD over the phone this last week and was able to pass on the information he thought they should know about. He also told me that the detective he spoke with apologized for not responding initially. Which brings up a point. If you have ever left a tip about Barbara Cotton's disappearance and then never heard back from the police... No matter if it was recently or years ago, you might want to pick up the phone and call them again and make sure someone has noted or processed your concern or tip. In other words, if you never received a response at all, do not assume your tip was not important. Please reach out again to Williston PD and ask to be heard. Or email me at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm in the process of exploring with Chad if he wants to share more about his story. Now, let's move on to some more information I found about Frank de la Pena. In the documentation I got from Wyoming, in a police report, I found an interesting note. Shortly after de la Pena abducted, then murdered Penny Swanson and Renee Davidson, a woman named Debbie Riggins contacted police and said de la Pena was a friend of hers, and in fact, he had been the best man in her wedding in 1978. So I decided we should try to find this Debbie Riggins and see if she could tell us more about Frank de la Pena. And I got some great help from an extended member of the Cotton family, Lisa Jo Sheely. Lisa Jo is a skilled genealogy researcher, and so she did me a huge favor and went looking for Debbie Riggins. Here she is. I, I was coming up empty. You know, I usually search from a genealogy perspective. So I'm looking for marriage records and things like that. And I could not find anything for Wyoming or surrounding states with anyone in the party with that last name around that year, anything. And so Lisa Joe switched to Google. Found um, an article about seismic helicopters in the 80s in um, Star Valley, Wyoming. And somebody by the name of Bobby Riggins, commented and said, you know, just something short, like, I was there. Um, and so I pursued that. And I ended up searching on Facebook. And and sure enough, Bobby Riggins had a Facebook account. And in Bobby Riggins' friends list was a Debbie. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna, we'll see. You know, we'll see if it's her. Lisa Joe sent this Debbie a message on Facebook. And sure enough, it was her. Debbie said she hesitated at first to respond, but finally she did. 
she did, and she said she was glad she did. Lisa, Joe, and Debbie conversed on Facebook Messenger for quite a while, and finally, Lisa, Joe asked Debbie if it would be okay for me to call her. Debbie said that would be fine, and I did call her and speak to her, but unfortunately, she didn't want to be on the podcast herself. However, she told me that anything she had told Lisa Joe on Facebook Messenger, we could tell the world. So that's what we're going to do instead. Instead of interviewing Debbie, we're going to let Lisa Joe tell us what she learned from Debbie. When Frank Delapena left Williston on May 3rd or 4th, 1981, and traveled south to Wyoming, he first went to a place called Thermopolis, and there he attempted to contact his friends Debbie and Bobby Riggins. This was two days before the murders took place in Rollins. Apparently, um, he had been trying to reach out to them, and um, she she worked with these crews, too. Um, so her and her husband both worked um, long hours and all of that, and um, so when he had tried to reach out, you know, she was like, we were just so, we were working so many hours, and, you know, we didn't really have a ton of money to go meet up with them anyways and stuff you know she didn't know why he was trying to get a hold of them you know she assumed it was just to you know hang out or whatnot and so she kind of they kind of blew it off and I think she has a lot of regret in that aspect as well you know she really wonders you know maybe if if we had um, called him back or whatnot so yeah I I do feel like this was emotionally taxing for her um you could kind of tell that, you know, she had struggled a lot with it. Back in 1981, when Debbie Riggins and her husband heard that the best man in their wedding had been arrested, suspected of killing two young girls, they couldn't believe it. In fact, they didn't believe it at first, not until they heard all the evidence against him when they finally accepted it. But initially, they contacted the police and told them they must have the wrong guy. This was even before Frank had been apprehended. So she reached out to police and she actually was reaching out to clear him. She thought he couldn't be responsible for this. And she ended up talking to him and she ended up being able to give them photos of him and everything else. So then the police were, I think, kind of skeptical of them. And um, they actually held them at pretty much overnight because they felt like her and her husband might actually know where he was, which I mean, they're trying to find him, you know, and after what he had just done, like, I can't blame them for that, so. Another thing Lisa Joe learned from Debbie was that Frank de la Pena had a wife and a son in Mexico. At some point, his wife and son had been in the United States with him or visiting him, and Debbie met them. And his wife's name was Consuelo, and she didn't speak English, and Debbie just ad ad absolutely adored her, though. They actually went to the library and got a book so that they could communicate back and forth. Frank de la Pena's son was also named Frank, Frank Jr., and was born in 1978. seemed like, you know, that boy was the world to him and that he was absolutely lost when they went back to Mexico. So, so Frank de la Pena was the best man in her wedding, and she's no longer married to that guy, is that correct? Yep, uh, okay. they're divorced. So. so, but after you reached out to her and started talking about this she reached out to her ex-husband frank de la pena was his best man at their wedding and yep well tell us what you just or she discovered and told you so and uh, you know as far as i can tell it seems like this was the first time that she was hearing any of 
this, um, what she said was, uh, apparently Frank was the son of a prostitute in Juarez. He had a terrible childhood and had anger issues. I did not know all of this. And she said, Bob said he didn't get along with a lot of the people on the crew and threatened to kill some of them um, for making fun of him. So He threatened to kill them? Yep. And they were, he felt they were making fun of him? He mentioned Frank had a lot of mental issues, but that he was always nice to us. And she said she thinks that they were his only friends. There's some different companies now. I mean, what we know, what we have known about Frank Delapena is that he worked for Cephal. But you've got some new names of companies. Can you explain any of that to us here? Well, I know that um, in Wyoming, um, this company, I think it was CGG, and that's not to say necessarily that Frank worked for that company with them, um, but at some point he must have. SizePros is another one. Yeah, um, so, and that's in Scobie. I'll refresh our memory on Scobie, Montana. We've been trying to figure out why Stacy Werder was in a motel, if he was at all, in Scobie, Montana, two days after Barbara vanished. Louise told police she thought Barbara was there with him. We have no solid connection between Stacy Werder and Frank de la Pena, but we're wondering if they knew each other. Things they have in common are that they both were in Williston when Barbara went missing. They both worked in the oil industry. They both hung themselves in jail after Barbara went missing. And finally, while Stacy Werder was in the company of Barbara on the night she disappeared, Frank de la Pena murdered two young girls. Right. Okay, let's talk about Scobie, Montana here. I mean, it's, there's kind of a connection. You... It might not necessarily be at the same point in time, but, um, you know, I did try to ask her about, you know, or well, she listened to episode nine. I told her that she really should. And then um, and then I, you know, had more of a discussion with her and we talked about Stacey Werder and stuff like that. And, um, you know, how he, you know, had reportedly been in Scobie and, and she piped in and said, we worked in SCOBY, right. you know, and so we talked about that and I just asked her what company she worked for. And yeah, so she gave me those two names. Um, I'm not sure at what point in time right. they worked there, if it was before or after, because it, it sounds like they really traveled around a lot. You know, it's kind of um, interesting to tie all these places that we hear about in, you know, Barb's story and tracking people of interest, you know, come up, you know, in, in so many different people's stories. Then Lisa, Joe, and I talked about something else. We got some bad news recently from Wyoming. You'll recall that we were keeping our fingers crossed that law enforcement agencies in Wyoming might locate some physical evidence from Frank de la Pena's crime, maybe photographs of the interior of the van or trailer, or other evidence that might somehow link de la Pena to Barbara Cotton, or Stacy Werder for that matter. We were just hoping for that long shot, photographs or hair samples or anything they had collected. Anything, really. Well, I got an email from Wyoming this week. Here it is, read by a voice actor. Mr. Walner, I've checked everywhere else that I could think of, and I was not able to locate any other evidence in this case. With this case occurring so long ago, it would be difficult to say what may have happened to the items that were listed on DCI's inventory. I know this is disappointing. 
I was also hoping to locate something else that could help in any other cases Mr. Delapena could have been a suspect in. I hope the information that we were able to provide will be of some help, though. Regards, Sarah Miles, Carbon County Sheriff's Office, Rollins, Wyoming. And so it looks that 40 years is a little too long to wait to request this evidence. We know that Williston PD was made aware of De La Pena immediately in May of 1981. Here is Detective Hendricks of Williston PD from my interview with her in Episode 6. In May of 1981, we had received information from Wyoming um, that they had a double homicide of two young girls down in Rawlings, Wyoming. Um, and that they had a witness that stated that a white van with North Dakota license plates on it was trying to pick up young girls. One thing that really stuck out to me, you know, after realizing that, you know, Williston might not have all this stuff, is that, you know, they said in the in the interview with the detectives that, you know, this De La Pena guy, they found him when they were going through everything with Team Adam and all of that. So at some point, somebody must have, I, I mean, I imagine, I guess I don't know exactly how all of this works. I... I guess I just got the impression that they were going through Barb's stuff and not necessarily circling out from there. But at some point, somebody must have associated, you know, De La Pena with Barb and, you know, left some little nugget of information there in Barb's files, but never followed up. You know, but what really bothered me you know what really irks me and i'm sure like people in the facebook group think i'm super angry <laughs> like i'm just i just i i get irritated about this but you know they started they said that it was when they were working on this case with um team adam and stuff that they found that and it immediately threw up a red flag but they didn't request those files until a week after you did a year and a half later I need to make one thing clear here. Lisa Joe is referring to the Delapena file from Hugo, Colorado, which included police reports and information about Delapena's arrest and suicide, including a suicide note. Williston PD requested that just after we did recently, but I have no idea if or when they requested the bulk of the investigative records and potential evidence from Wyoming where the crimes actually took place. I did ask Williston PD, but they declined to comment. You know, nobody expects that everybody's going to drop everything and focus on a, a 40-year-old cold case, but it it does deserve a level of attention that it gets thoroughly investigated. I mean, it's just, it, you know, they gave, they gave you this name as a person of interest, and I just feel like all it would have taken was a phone call. That's not labor-intensive. By the way, there's no doubt that Frank De La Pena was guilty of those homicides in Wyoming. The evidence against him was overwhelming. But Debbie Riggins was not the only person to state that this evil man was also a polite man. This includes the sheriff at the time, the man who arrested him, Leroy Yowell. I'm 80. I turned 80 Friday. He was very polite and very nice to deal with. 
Well, me and the CSP worked together on this and arrested him and put him in jail. And then he committed suicide. Only had two suicides in the jail in my 32 years. And he was the first one. Do you think, well, let's put it this way. Do you think it's possible that this guy was responsible for other missing persons like the one I'm looking into? Could be. I'm not certain. He didn't give me any indication that there was, but there's very possible that he could. Before I leave you, I want to ask you all for some more help. I've been trying to locate someone for quite a while, but so far, no luck. Here's the story. We've been trying to find anyone who knew Stacy Werder in North Dakota or Montana. Well, we have one lead, but it's a tough one. Maybe one of you can find this person, if he's even still alive. This is what we know. Sometime after Stacy Werder's suicide, three men took Stacy's belongings to Northern California and delivered it all in person to Stacy's mother near Wairika, California. Our understanding is that these three men knew Stacy Werder, possibly worked with them, or maybe they were drifters and had been on the road with Stacy. We don't even have their names, but we have some information that might help someone track them down. One of these three men used a nickname. His name was Red. The other information we have about him is that Red was convicted of armed robbery and sent to prison for a long term, possibly 35 years. That's all we know. Some guy named Red traveled to California and delivered Stacy Werder's belongings to his family. Two other men went with him. Soon after, Red was convicted of a crime and went to prison. The information we have is that it was possibly armed robbery and the sentence was a very long one. We want to find this person or any persons who personally knew Stacy Werder in 1981. Send me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. That's all for this time. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time on our continued Better Search for Barbara Cotton. Uh, I'll read you something that I wrote down, you know, before you called. I was just like... I want to get this right so much for her. I, I wrote down, she had this long, beautiful, slightly wavy hair. That was just the thing about her. I'm sure there had to have been one between us after all those years, like where we got in an argument or a fight, you know, as kids do, and then get back together or whatever, but I don't remember one. I always remember being good to me and like we were besties. I can still see her sitting there. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Mm
some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.